today's story is called Southside 1962. Ireland must have been a difficult place to emigrate to in the 1960s. A woman looks after her newborn child and daydreams in South Dublin all those years ago. Southside 1962. The woman stares out of the window, smoking a cigarette. The rain pours down on a South Dublin garden. The child is asleep in his carry cot in the living room. The kettle is brewing for what seems like the hundredth cup of tea. A neighbour will come over at eleven o'clock, and the kettle will be put into action again. But it is not yet eleven, it is only nine-thirty, and there is so much of the day left. She watches the smoke rising towards the ceiling. She should open a window, but it is cold outside. Very cold, very wet, and very Irish. Here she was amongst them. How did that happen? How did it all seem like a wonderful idea a few short years ago? Ireland is friendly, after a fashion. Ireland is pretty, after a fashion. But it is still, after three years, alien. When you take a risk, you require either glorious success or abject failure. But she has landed in between. Modest comfort, modest marriage, modest everything. The child cries, but settles down again. The child is healthy and normal, and appallingly insufficient. The husband is kind and conscientious, devoted and principled, but he lacks ambition. She can see that now. He has had his position bestowed, and he resents it. He dislikes the things she would love to revel in. It's not that she hasn't been to dinner parties. She has. It is not that she hasn't been to dances. She has. Or to business lunches, golf clubs, soirees, church fates, coffee mornings, the theatre, and expensive restaurants. Like the smoke from her cigarette, she has risen. Like the smoke from her cigarette, she has not yet managed to leave the room. Everything about Ireland is mediocre. Unfair, but true. And that's the crux of the matter. She herself is unfair. But the observations that she makes to herself are valid. Consider the thin, pale man who is her husband. He is a good man, an intelligent man, a talented man. But what is it in the scent of his melancholia that infuriates her? They don't really talk about it. Well, she can't quite explain what it is. He has accepted that life will be a disappointment, that's it. And she, most certainly, has not. But is that a justification for this quiet anger that is growing inside her? It is the relations between all the things in her life that carry hope and aspiration, not simply people or facts in themselves. And there is something about this relative positioning that is wrong. Well, not wrong exactly, but that could and should be different. Yet what to do about it? You are supposed to love your husband. She did not love him when they were married, but she fully expected that she would grow to love him, because that is what happened, did it not, with the people who were happily obviously happily married, in time. There were moments when she felt great affection and sometimes even admiration. Those had to be the promising shoots of a later blooming love. And so she has waited. She goes over this again and again. Is it wrong to want more? Always to want more? Is it sinful to desire a happiness that is greater than the happiness you have, that would lift like the rising tide, like the smoke if she were to open the window, lift your heart to a vantage point from which you could finally discard your selfishness. She doesn't want him to be a good man, no, to be merely a good man. 
she needs him to be active in promoting the family's interests. If not for her, if not for her own vision of triumphant possibility, then at least for his son. But he does not value affluence or success, or anything positive that could ever be associated with greed. His is a soul brewed in guilt. She feels no guilt. What is there to be guilty about? She draws the smoke into her lungs and slowly releases it. A blue-grey cloud spirals upwards, curling and scattering, creating momentary sculptures of changing patterns until they dissipate, turning the air in the room to a sweet domestic smog. There is more and more on the news these days about how smoking may be bad for the health, especially the health of children. All that smoke and tar collects in the lungs and clogs them, makes them more susceptible to cancer. It's a gruesome prospect, but surely an alarmist one. There are health scares about everything that then turn out to be wild exaggerations. This month it's smoking, last month it was butter and sugar, before that it was beer and wine. If you took the advice of the radio, or the wireless, as her husband insisted on calling it, then you'd be changing your diet and your lifestyle every week. You couldn't keep up with what the experts said. What science suggests may have a grain of truth every now and then, but no one can weave through its contradictions and arrive at anything manageable. And anyway, she has adjusted her behaviour and doesn't smoke in the same room as the baby anymore. Her husband wants to give up smoking completely, for the sake of the child. She hates it when he outmanoeuvres her morally, and he only smokes one pack a day, twenty silk cut. She prefers the older-style gold leaf and two packets, double his intake. It's impossible to do without. A housewife must smoke. The child cries again. She stubs her cigarette out in an ashtray that says, Guinness is good for you. That's probably not true, she thinks, and walks into the front room to pick the boy up from his carry cot. He is heavy. It is another example of an in-between state that no one informed her about. Her son is not a baby any more. Not a baby because when you think about babies, they aren't this big or this flailing or this loud. But he's not a toddler either because he doesn't yet toddle. Oh, they are expecting a toddle any day now. He can sit up and gesticulate, and he is trying to haul what must be to him an immense weight upright. But those first tentative steps are not yet attempted. So what is he? An all-consuming burden, perhaps? Is that too harsh? She's so harsh. She even tells herself she's harsh. But here the boy is in her arms, and he weighs a ton. He flickers with love, or perhaps that should be she flickers with love. Like a slightly wonky television, exactly like the actual television they have, come to think of it. The picture comes and goes for no apparent reason. Sometimes there is a good signal, and sometimes, no matter how much you move things around, there is only a cloudy blur. She can rationalise the love she has for her husband, or the lack of it. It's perfectly understandable. It doesn't violate any deep human value. But this partial love that she has for the child, it worries her. That this is not what other mothers feel. They are all instinct and emotion, and a bond too deep for tears. She shies away from their obvious love for their equally unattractive squealing brats. She knows this is wrong. She knows this reveals an inadequacy that cannot be confessed to anyone. Not in this child-worshipping country. Of course, the declared promotion of the interests of children does not match the lived experience of those children. She has seen enough beggars and barefooted gurriers in Dublin to know that not all is as it should be with Catholic Ireland. 
Nevertheless, the crowds, no, the armies of young mothers swaddling their babes with tenderness, that is inescapable, and it exposes the wound of her heart. The boy nuzzles into her, long bottled as breastfeeding was too painful. You must stick with it, said the midwife. But the midwife's nipple had not been gnawed to a bloody stump by a ravenous pup. He has calmed, and his little eyes are closed, and he breathes sweetly in her arms. There. Is that not love? Is that not good enough? She holds him and walks up and down, how much easier than when he is crying, when the object is to soothe and silence. Now it is just the warmth of him, a riposte to those thoughts of her limited motherhood. There was little enough warmth that emanated from her own mother, she recalls, a cool relationship built on discipline and then mutual respect. Is that why she finds this emoting, demonstrable parenting so difficult? She was an only child, but far from being smothered with attention, she was simply set a number of expectations to meet, and that, the odd private thrashing aside, was that. She grew up, she coped, she was not bullied at school, she engaged well with others, she made friends, she became an adult. Her mother had not approved of this marriage, of course, but she wouldn't have approved of any marriage, especially to an Irishman. Scottish anti-Catholic prejudice could not really comprehend the existence of Southern Irish Protestants. No surrender unionists were understood, but the subtle Southern assimilators were not. They were all paddies and papists. But her mother had been won over eventually by her husband's determination to charm her with his etiquette and grace. It was a remarkable performance, and he had triumphed. Did she resent that too? No. She had been annoyed by her mother's behaviour initially. Prejudice should be buried deep, not paraded. Now her mother was fading. Her sharp edges were blunted by age. She had even visited the Roman colony itself, had been entertained in the green fields, and survived to tell the tale. A fondness was growing. Patronising and dismissive, of course, but a fondness nonetheless. Well, people change. They thaw, then they fade. It would happen to her, too, one day, a life shutting up shop at the end. But there was so much time left, so much time. Why did she feel trapped? The hands on the clock had barely moved today. The list of chores she had made for herself lay unticked on the kitchen table. She had better get on with it. She put her son down again, and the word suddenly brought its force home. Her son. Not the baby, not the child, but something more personal, something to tug at the heart. Unsentimental, but with blossoming identity. Her son. In the blink of an eye... So she was told over and over again by the gaggle of experts by experience. He would be talking, walking, growing, schooling, falling in love, leaving home, settling down, edging her own generation out of the comfort of their own rebellion. The speed of change, the short breadth of a life, well, certainly, but not today. Today he was young, and though she warmed to him, he was still squat and useless. Sweet, squat and useless, and her reveries used up only a fraction of the morning. Keep busy, she told herself, then the time will quicken. She returned to the kitchen and lit another cigarette. Far from slowing down to a stop, she was in danger of smoking more. Each cigarette was a little nugget of time, a pleasure with which to chip away at the day. If she were to cease altogether, she would have to confront herself more starkly, yet more starkly. It was not to be tolerated, not yet. She would have to master this domestic boredom more purposefully, 
she would have to find something tangible with which to replace the cigarette, something else to punctuate the unhappiness with a glow of indulgence, something her husband would endure without histrionics. How easily roused was his righteousness! Then the tolerance and calm that he prided himself in slipped away like a serpent's skin to expose the savage fury beneath. She thought of her fur coat, her beloved fox mantle, that hung unused in her wardrobe. She had merely intended to look her best, to assert herself as his glamorous companion at the board's Christmas celebration. It was meant to be an evening of revelry and enjoyment. She wanted to cut a certain figure, to be admired. Heaven knows he knew the coat existed. He had not barred its entrance to the house, and he had not stipulated that it must never be worn when she had unpacked her belongings after they had moved into the new home. He was waiting in his dinner jacket at the foot of the stairs when she appeared, ready to take on the night, to sip champagne, engage in meaningless small talk, and simply look beautiful. Could she not still aspire to that every so often, to please him as much as anything else? Did he even still notice her beauty? Well, not then, not on that night. His brow narrowed with fury. He spat out that she should take that thing off at once. She had tried to defy him, then to cajole him, then to soften him with tears, then to goad him, then to fling the coat at his feet and storm back upstairs and slam the door. Their first out-and-out row, boiling hot, ferocious. They abandoned the dinner. He would not relent, and so she would not accompany him. A score draw, much sulking on both sides, followed. Eventually he explained his position, as he described it. Shame of wealth, shame of ostentation, a long story about being with his mother on a tram and asking her about some poor child, all that internalised embarrassment at wealth. Understandable at a stretch, but ridiculous in the context of her coat. Why stop at a coat? Why not lipstick? Why not evening dress? Why not high-heeled shoes? Sackcloth for all occasions, that was the obvious end point of his malicious conscience. The coat had stayed on its hanger. It would gather dust, slowly decay, lose its sheen and its fashion and its comfort. Alas, marry in haste. But you had to do things in haste. That was just life. There was, as her mother had pointed out many times when thinking of her own brief marriage, no guarantee that anything would last. Her mother had been caught in the Puritan trap between Stoic acceptance and Protestant striving for betterment. A world of possibility had opened up before her, only to be crushed by her husband's early death and the bitter injustice meted out thereafter. The path to happiness is therefore not through the man you marry, because he may abandon you without warning. That is why, my girl, you must be self-sufficient. And wasn't she just that? No, because she had pursued the semi-romantic quest exactly like her mother the man as companion and chaperone on the path to fulfilment. Now he was never simply to be a foolish love match. You don't give up that early. But he needed to be an ally for your own ambition, a guide on your way to the realisation of your dreams. It wasn't going so well then. But there was still plenty of time. She recoiled at his bombast and his petulance, but all things considered, these outbursts were few and far between. They were merely the spume of delusion, untamed sparks that flew from his own encounter with the reality of life. She would and could be patient. Exerting influence was a gradual process. Her initial hot-flamed reactions were ill-considered, though it was difficult for her to control her temper. Could she bear it, though, 
easy to devise a strategy when you're on your own, when the soft rain trickles gently against the glass and all is mist-drenched and quiet. She knows what is required, the skills and the light touch of control, invisible politics, the whisper, the kiss, the soothing voice in the dark. If she could use them, then these were the methods on offer, a definite procedure for the stealthy advancement of her wishes, absorb, reflect, subdue, all mapped out in her head, all yet to be implemented, all to be tested against the articulate confusion of his doubt. He had consented to a cleaner and a nanny, but only three days per week. This was not such a day. To be honest, she wasn't sure which she preferred, the indolence of delegated responsibility or the direct involvement with what had to be done. Perhaps here her upbringing betrayed her. She could clean a toilet, vacuum a lounge, even mow a lawn, but she would never let on that she possessed these embarrassing skills. Did she carry the shame of poverty, or was she proud of her instinct for survival, the way that necessity had hardened her little family and inured it to some extent from the whims of fate? Now she was in sweeter climes, eccentric, perverse, but with expensive linen. And there was the conundrum. They had the wherewithal, for domestic graft never to appear as anything urgent, anything unpleasant, with which they would ever have to become directly involved. Should she guide this little one down that path of entitlement and authority, or should she take him by the scruff of his puppy-fat neck and teach him to set a fire, to wring out the clothes, to yank up the pulley, to change the sheets, to scrub the floor? There he lay, innocent and as yet unformed by the decisions of his parents, born to comfort, though perhaps not the comfort of vaulting ambition. Would she show him the world from which she had risen, or would she simply accept the class cushion of his elevation, no, his emergence at this stratum of Irish living? Smart clothes, nappies and shopping orders, the luxurious mundanity of South Dublin. Phone in what was needed. She had never encountered that facility before. You got out there and you shopped. It was an active endeavour, a manual labour of the female kind. But now the possibility of phoning each by each, the grocer, the baker, the butcher, the tailor, and all would be delivered in various multicoloured vans to her door, the produce she had demanded. Was there not a satisfaction to be taken in that act, those various acts of supplication, the lady of the house, the modest house, of modest means, but not too modest, and with plenty in store, with plenty of as yet unrealised orders to be filled? Her husband berated her for what he termed the affected accent she deployed to cow the various tradesmen and women on the other end of the line. There is no need, he insisted, to pretend that you come from the home counties of England straight out of finishing school. Cut glass will cut no ice here, he chortled at her expense. But he did not understand. She had to assert herself, to show them who was boss, to make sure that she was not taken for a ride by their Irish cunning. He might not mind or notice that a few pounds and shillings were added here and there to pay for his unintended patrician disdain, but she noticed. She was firm and clear, and she demanded respect. In order to achieve the effect she desired, it was necessary to enunciate in a tone that carried a message and a warning. She did not need to be liked, merely to be obeyed. But when you have never had to struggle, when you have never known what poverty and lowly station does to the inner workings of the mind, then you are oblivious to the small battles that take place every day in the negotiations and transactions of the world. The child was crying again. She took him out of the carry cot and plonked him down on the playmat. 
You must learn to fend for yourself in this poorly disguised war zone. And, as if he understood immediately what she was talking about, he rose on his chubby little legs and staggered towards her, holding out his arms. A few tottering steps, and then he collapsed back down to the floor. But that is the effort required, my son. Some of us have silver spoons and are carried. Some of us haul ourselves up without assistance. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please share.